0: The desire of Titus' women is to invite women around the world to know Jesus as their Savior, center, and source. May God guide and encourage you through this message. I'd like to read for us the 126th Psalm. It is a short Psalm, but it's one of those great gems. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with singing. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping Bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we give you thanks again for these days that we've had together in your faithfulness. There has not been a single service in which you have not met us. And now, Lord, we ask you to get our hearts ready for a final word from you. Still us, we pray. Still us to where we can hear the still small voice within and we can find out what your final word is for us in these moments together. And let this service count in preparation for the days that are ahead and we will give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. Someone has said that the book of Psalms is... uh, a book of pictures without frames. And the person who said that uh, they are, it is a book of pictures without frames, what he really was thinking was that uh, there is a picture in here to cover almost any circumstance that you will find yourself in. And the reason they're never put, are usually not put in frames, is because God wants you to be able to find one to fit your situation today and stick it on your wall and in your circumstances and get the strength that you need to live victoriously for him there. It is amazing the variety that you find in the book of Psalms. I really think you can just about find a psalm to cover any circumstance that you may ever find yourself in. There are psalms for those days of great joy and when it is right and appropriate that your whole being should be filled with ecstatic joy and praise to God. There are psalms here for you when you've committed sin and you need to find your way back to God and they will tell you something of how to do that. There are psalms when the world around you turns hostile and you've got enemies and maybe enemies galore and you wonder if you're ever going to survive. You'll find psalms to fit those circumstances. And then there are psalms that just fit those days when you never expected it, but you got a phone call you weren't looking for, or you got a letter that you wished you never received, or some experience happened in your life, and everything in your life turned upside down, and everything was wrong. Now, what do you do in those moments? That is why God has given us this incredible variety in the Psalms. Now, I want to confess that for years I read the 126th Psalm and paid no attention to it because I read the opening line when the Lord turns the captivity of Zion and I was sure that it was written for the Jews about their experience in Babylon when they were captives in in that foreign country, Babylon. Now, we do know that there were some psalms that were written from Babylon. Do you remember the 137th psalm where the, where the psalmist uh, tells, he speaks and says, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept, when we remembered Zion, there a long ways from Jerusalem. They said, we hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it, for those who carried us away captive required of us a song, and those who plundered us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how can you sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Now there are psalms that were written for, Je- for Babylonian captivity, but when I began working my way through this one, I found that that word captivity can be translated in more than one way. It can really be translated something like this, when the Lord turned the circumstances of Zion. Because that's what the Hebrew simply says, when the Lord turns the turnings of Zion. When everything's been going extremely well and suddenly, bang, it all just turns around and your whole world seems to fall apart. Now, you know, there are moments like that in a Christian's life. There are some people, sometimes, some of us in our immaturity that leave the impression that if you'll give your heart to Christ, that'll be the end of all your problems and you'll never have a moment of pain or suffering again if you really walk with him and if you're obedient to him. I remember when I was young, I was pastoring four country churches and uh, another young man, a little older than I but not too much, came into our part of the country for an incredible healing campaign. And he got the biggest place around to, to hold his meetings. And in a city that had 15,000 people in it, he packed 7,000 people in every night. And as he preached, he preached, and his prime thrust was healing. And if you'd come to Christ, he'd heal you. I remember that I supported that crusade, and my reason for supporting it was I heard him speak one day to a group of preachers, and he said, now everybody that goes through my healing line is not healed, but what if 15% of them are healed? Isn't that Doesn't that make it worthwhile? I couldn't argue with that. And I knew that he would talk about the new birth, and I didn't know too many people around me that were talking about it, and I knew he would talk about the Holy Spirit, and there weren't too many of those around. So I uh, gave it my support, and my parishioners went. And I remember watching them night after night as they went through the healing line. The fellow who lived three doors from me, who was probably the most devout man in our community, when he went through the healing line, the evangelist laid his hands on him and prayed, and as he prayed, he thrust his hands, and he looked at the man and he said, Boy, you've really got the faith, haven't you? I felt it when it hit you. And then the man came home, I don't know how many people there were from my parish who went through that healing campaign, but what interested me was the great high moments of the campaign but the very different six months that followed. Because in the six months that followed, I had to pick up the pieces on people who'd gone through that healing line who had never been healed but thought they were. I remember one little lady after about six weeks who called me. She was a member of a free will holiness church. And she said, Brother Kinlaw, I'm not one of your sheep, but I need a shepherd. Could you come and talk with me? And so I went and found this precious little lady sitting in a wheelchair tied up with her arthritis or whatever it was that made a cripple out of her. And she looked at me and wept profusely. And as she wept, she said to me, you know, I went through the healing line. And when I got on the platform in front of those 7,000 people, she said, the evangelist invited me to walk toward toward him. And so she said, I stood up, and to my joy, I could walk, and I walked across that platform. But when I came off the platform, and they brought me home, I've never been able to walk a step since. What did I do? Where did I sin against my Lord? I would not sin against my Lord for anything in the world. What happened that I am not healed? Now, you know, I sort of cut my pastoral teeth. It was interesting. I didn't know a single case of healing in that crusade among my parishioners, but I had one lady who found Christ and joined my church who found Christ in that crusade. And I always wondered if the Lord sent her to me to keep me quiet. (laughs) Because uh, Christ was preached in that. But there was an impression that if you will just do this, then you will be free from your troubles and it will all be all the way sort of victory and glory. But the reality is that uh, that is not going to take place until we reach the other side. Now that doesn't mean that God doesn't heal, because on occasion he does. We have a son who was operating on a girl who had been on the drug route, and she was loaded with the kind of hepatitis you find in drug addicts and, and homosexuals and prostitutes. The other, One of the other surgeons hand slipped, and our son, he cut, his, he cut the hand through the glove into the flesh of our son, and our son came down and was scrubbed out of surgery because of that. But about a year and a half later, God miraculously touched him and healed him, and he's perfectly well today. He's not even a carrier. Now thank God for that, but what about the people that that doesn't happen to? Now, uh, the Psalmist said, I want you to know their days if you walk with God, when your circumstances will turn on you it won't be glory and joy and fun all the way now why does god let negative things happen to us because do you know there's some things god can say in the negative circumstances he can never say in the positive some of you have heard me tell the story and many of you have read it somewhere else of Robertson McQuilkin, six years ago I got a letter from him, president of Columbia Bible College, and he said, 40 years ago I stood in front of an altar and said, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness, in health, to love and to cherish until death us do part. He said, for 40 years my wife has kept her part of that bargain. And a few weeks ago the doctor told me that my wife's case of Of sickness was such that it would only be a matter perhaps of a few weeks and she would no longer recognize me and she would no longer know me as her own husband so he said with this letter I am resigning as president of Columbia Bible College and I will give the rest of my life to keeping my vow for better for worse in sickness and in health to love and to cherish you know it's interesting That testimony has gone farther across the United States than any healing that I've ever read about. Because the grace of God can make a man faithful to a wife when she is nothing but practically a vegetable and can enable him to keep his vows and there is a witness in that that can never come by a a miracle of healing. And God is interested in showing the glories of his grace. And so he may do it one way, but he may choose to do it another. And the psalmist says, you know, there was a day when Zion's circumstances turned. Everything went sour, and then one day God acted. The other day I got a phone call from Robertson McQuilkin. We've had a bit of a friendship across the years. And he is in the midst of publishing a book on the victorious Christian life. And he said, we need some witnesses in this, of the power of Christ, to give a person victory in any circumstances. And when he publishes a book on victorious Christian living, I'm ready to listen, aren't you? Now, uh, the psalmist said there was a day when our circumstances went wrong. But he said, in our negative circumstances, one day God acted. And when he acted, he delivered us. Now, aren't those incredible moments when he comes in great power and deliverance for us? I love the way the psalmist describes it. The psalmist says, when the Lord turned the circumstances of Zion... We were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Now uh, what does he mean we are like those that, that dream? There are those glorious moments when God comes to you and it's as if it were too good to be true. You want to pinch yourself and say this is bound to be a dream. It can't be true, it's too good to be true. And you wake up to the fact you were awake all along and that is exactly what God has done. He has acted and he has delivered you in the midst of your circumstances. Now the psalmist says that was happened to us. He has acted and delivered us. Now he says, when he delivered us an interesting thing happened. Do you notice the next line, then they said among the nations. Now the Hebrew word there is the word for Gentiles. It's the word goyim. And if you know anything about Israel or Jews, you know what a goy is. You're one, probably. Most of us here are. He says, uh, Then said they among the goyim, the nations, the Gentiles, The Lord has done great things for them. And the psalmist says, The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Now, isn't it interesting that there are moments when God works in your life to the extent that you don't have to testify? Your pagan neighbors will testify for you. And do you know that's one of the things that's been true of the history of the people of God from its beginnings? When God delivered the people from Egyptian bondage, the neighbors noticed and took note that their God had been very good to them. Are you aware that most of the converts of Paul in the first century were Gentiles who had watched the Jews and their manner of life was so far superior to the Gentile manner of life that they attached themselves to Jewish synagogues and the Jews had a technical name for them? They were not Jews. They were not among the elect but they were God-fearers who had joined the synagogues because The Jewish way, God's way of life, was so much better than their pagan way. Now, uh, we give thanks when he comes and our neighbors say, What about that? I never read this, but that I remember a story, another one, from John Church. Dr. Church told me about, uh, it was back during the days of the Second World War, He said he was coming south, down from Virginia below Washington, headed for Norfolk. And he said, I knew the last ferry across to Norfolk was at 6 o'clock. And he said, I needed badly to make it to keep an appointment. And so he said, I knew my time was getting short, and so I had that thing set on the speed limit and was traveling, doing everything I could do to make that. He said, as I traveled along, I noticed a guy standing side of the road and looked, and it was a soldier, American GI, and he was standing there with his thumb up. Those were the war years, and society was a lot safer in those days than now, and so Dr. Church didn't think twice. He just slowed up. The kid crawled in the front seat, put his things down, and they barreled on their way toward Norfolk. He said, you know, we hadn't been driving too long when suddenly, he said, I felt a deep impression he said, uh, God, there was an inner voice that said to me, stop. Now he said there was no explanation as to why I was supposed to stop. So he said, I didn't pay any attention to it. And the voice came again inside the impression, stop. He said, I kept going and it kept coming. And so he said, I pulled off on the berm and stopped. He said, when I got off and had the brake on, and it came to a standstill. As I reached up to turn the key, he said the front left tire blew out. You know, those were war years. It was difficult to get good tires there. A lot of us had blowouts in those days. But he said, so I just simply took the key out of the car, out of the ignition. He said, got out, walked to the back, opened the trunk, got the jack out, went around and he said, I had the front end of that car halfway jacked up before that GI moved. He said finally he got out sort of slowly and came around as if he were in a little bit of a daze and said, sir, did you know that tire was going to blow? and." John Church looked back at him and said, No, son, I didn't. Well, he said, Why under the sun did you stop? Well, he said, The Lord told me to. He said, The soldier just stood there and shook his head. Finally, he spoke and said, Well, I'm not a Christian. But he said, Let me tell you something. There's nothing in the world I wouldn't give for your connections. Now, God wants you and me to live in such a way that people around us will say, I wish I had his connections. And they will say that if we take victory right, and they will say that if we take trouble right. And it may be that it will be in the midst of trouble that the greatest testimony can be given as to the grace and the glory of the God whom we serve. So he says, the neighbor said, the Lord has done great things for them. And the Jewish psalmist said, that's right. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Now at that point, you get a break in the psalm, and you get a second, hint, second verse. He says, now, Lord, turn our circumstances again. <laughs> what I've been talking to you about, he says, is history but things have gone wrong again and we need your help now. He said, in fact, we would like for you to turn our circumstances like streams in the Negev. Now, uh, I remember when I first began to look at that, like streams in the south, streams in the Negev, streams in the desert. I thought, you don't have streams in the desert. The desert's the place where you don't have water. But, you know, the interesting thing is that sometimes it does rain in the desert. A number of years ago I read a short article in the middle of the New York Times. It was an article from Africa. It was about a party that had been drowned at an oasis in the midst of the Sahara Desert. And, you know, I thought of the Sahara as simply a big sand pile. And if it would ever rain, you know, the water would go down instantly. But when you get baked clay, when you get baked surface hard enough, if it does rain, what does the rain do? It seeks the lowest spot, and it seeks it instantly. And do you know in the Middle East you can get drowned in a wadi by a wall of water with an unexpected rain that nobody ever counted on, and suddenly it's there? And you better watch. And that had happened to this group. If I remember correctly, it was a group of Roman Catholic nuns in the Sahara Desert. Now, the psalmist knew all of that, and he said, Lord, you know what we'd like for you to do for us? We'd like for you to do something none of us are expecting, because in the desert, if it rains, it's not expected. And we'd like for you to do it suddenly, precipitously, because our situation is deeply ne- needy enough to, that we need something now and suddenly. And that's the way sometimes God works. When you're not looking, bang, he turns your circumstances. But now, now he comes to the close, and we get two verses of conclusion. It's sort of wisdom that has come out of his years of experience. And he says, let me tell you what to do when things go wrong. He said, those who sow in tears will reap in joy. He who going goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Now what do you do when things are bad and they keep bad? And you you know they're, they're bad enough that you just want to pull the world around you and Crawl in your hole and weep in self-pity. Now that's the kind of circumstances because you notice the references to weeping. When life is such that the only right response is just to weep, what do you do? He said, I want you to get some seed and start sowing. Isn't that amazing? I read that for years without thinking about what he really was saying. Do you know the one thing that nobody wants to do when things are sad enough that you want to pull the world in around you and sob your heart out, weep your heart out in self-pity? The last thing you're interested in doing is sowing seed. (coughs) Because sowing seed is never the answer to any immediate problem. And sowing seed normally is not an answer to your problems, but an answer to somebody else's problems. And the psalmist says, are things real bad? Let me tell you what to do. I want you to start thinking about the future because God is going to win. His cause is going to survive and win. He's not going out of business. And he's going to win it. And you need to be a part of that future, so start sowing. Start living for the... Today's so bad, forget about today. Start living for tomorrow and making your plans for it. And start thinking about somebody else. And giving yourself so others can know the truth that you know. Now, in the Hebrew, it's, it's even more impressive to me than it is in the English, because you know what it literally says? He who going goes. The verb go is repeated twice. You've got an infinitive and then a finite verb. He who going goes, weeping while he weeps, bearing seed for sowing, will coming come with rejoicing, bearing his see, bringing his sheaves with him. Now why did the Hebrew writer say, He who going goes. That's a Semitic way of saying, What I want you to do is go, and go, and go, and keep on going. Keep at it. Don't let anything stop you. Keep faithful. Keep giving that witness. Keep walking humbly before God. Keep doing the thing He wants you to do. Keep putting one foot in front of you in front of the other in obedience to him and in faith. And he says, I'll tell you something, coming you will surely come. Coming you will come. There is no question about it. It is as sure as the nature of God himself. It is as sure as the existence of God. If you're faithful, coming you will come, bringing your sheaves with you. Now, that's the psalm that uh, was written in a day when uh, the Hebrews had had some problems. And so the psalmist gives to us the wisdom that comes out of that. Now, uh, I don't know what your future is and what next week is for you or next month. For you, for your wife, for your husband, for your children, for your parents, for your friends, for your church. But let me tell you, it isn't all going to be a bowl of cherries. And God wants it that way because you'll have an opportunity to witness in the dark days in a way that you never have in the bright days. And he loves you enough to let you share in his circumstances in that because all of those days are his. And you know, he's faithful. Let me give you an illustration out of this. You know... uh, two of the major prophets of the Old Testament, their lives are tied up with the captivity of Israel, with the exile. Jeremiah preached for 40 years. As far as we know, the longest prophetic ministry in the Old Testament. Had all sorts of suffering, and there was never a miracle in his life. There were days when he cursed the day he was born, but he kept going, going, couldn't quit. He said, when I decided to quit, there was a fire burned in my bones and I had to keep going. And so he was faithful. He was faithful enough that 600 years later when Jesus came along, healing the sick and raising the dead, people said there was a guy came through the year 600 years ago like this. His name was Jeremiah. Now, the other man is Ezekiel. Ezekiel was younger than Jeremiah. And when Nebuchadnezzar's army came and surrounded Jerusalem and captured and, you remember, put the eyes of the king out, when he took the king into Babylonian captivity, he took Ezekiel with him. He was a young priest. Ezekiel's whole life was supposed to be tied up around the the temple. He was a priest. That was his vocation. That was his business. And now the temple has been totally destroyed. There's not a stone left on top of another stone. And the city of Jerusalem is in alien hands. And this young priest is way away in Babylon among the pagans, among the idolaters, among people who knew nothing about the true God. You will remember that he lived his life out there. You will remember that Jeremiah died down in Egypt. But do you know what happened in the captivity? They prayed and prayed and said, Lord, save us. And when they prayed, Lord, save us, they meant save us from our troubles. But the Lord didn't save them from their troubles, but you know what he did do? Those 70 years in captivity gave the Jews the opportunity to see the emptiness and the tragedy of idolatry. And do you know the one thing you've their lust for idols and their lust for idolatry. Now, it didn't come easily. It took 70 years of captivity there. But when they came back, you know what they were ready for? They were ready to prepare the way for a man named John the Baptist, who prepared the way for a man named Jesus and for the redemption of the world. You know, there are days when you say, are we going to win this? Let me tell you, you keep putting one foot in front of the other because he's going to win. And if you keep putting one foot in front of the other, you'll be a part of that. Now, there are periods in life when things are not as good as you'd like. But the wonderful thing is there's a balance that he gives. I have had the privilege through OMS to know a little of the work of OMS in uh, India over the last 50 years. I remember some of the people who influenced me a great deal when I was young, like Eugene Ernie. Went to India, Wesley Duell, they spent their lives out there. Wasn't easy. Tough, hard work. Almost fruitless work. Very difficult work. The church grew very little, but they were faithful. Do you know one of the greatest explosions in the history of the Christian church in the 20th century has taken place in the last few years in India? Elmer Kilburn, I think, has been responsible for building somewhat, 500, 600 churches in India. That's on the foundation of the people who went and paid the price they didn't see the fruit but now that fruit is coming because somebody has been faithful now my word to you tonight is it's worth it when the going's rough keep getting that one foot right in front of the other and keep moving going keep on going and if going you keep on going i want to tell you coming you will come rejoicing in the fruit that God gives to those that are faithful to him. Now, and while we're going, we don't have to go alone because he goes with us. And it's in some of those dark days that you learn how sweet his presence is. It's in some of those dark days that you learn more about the sweetness of his presence. One thing to learn, the lushness of his hand in gift. And it's another thing to learn the sweetness of his presence when in the pain and the trauma he's there with you. With this I close. The other day we, when we were dealing with Psalm 8, I mentioned the fact that uh, Girolamo Savonarola, who was a Roman Catholic priest in Italy in the end of the 15th century, read his Bible, and came to personal faith in Christ. And he began to preach, and as he preached, he preached what God told him to do, to preach. He became a flaming voice for God, and that upset the hierarchy and the political powers, and they said something has to be done to stop him. And so you will remember one day they took him, and they broke his left arm, and they pulled it out of the joint. They left his right arm free so he could write a recantation. But when they set him down to write the recantation, he wrote a meditation on Psalm 31 and Psalm 41. Do you know when that was? That was 1498. Do you know what happened 20 years later? There was a German monk by the name, 19 years later, there was a German monk by the name of Martin Luther who took a hammer one day and nailed some theses on a cathedral door. Do you know where a lot of the inspiration for that came from? It came from the Savonarolas and the Husses and the Wycliffe's and the people like that who had sacrificed their lives and shed their blood for the cause of Christ. We need to let God do something in our hearts to where we say, Lord, you pick the kind of day and you give me the grace to embrace it because I know there'll never be a pain that's lost. There'll never be a pain that's wasted if I'm walking in your will. And if it takes pain to produce the new child, Let me know the labor and the travail of it. We don't get new life without some price. And you and I should be, say, Lord, you know what it takes. I'm not asking for pain, but God, if that's what it takes to make my life count, make my life fruitful, you lead me and give me the grace to where I can embrace every day, no matter what you include in that day, and embrace it victoriously. And going, just keep on going. So my word to you tonight is, he's drawn near to us in these days together. We know something of his grace. There's been joy in it. When you hit the low spots, look up. Say, God, keep me going. Keep me faithful. Because I know that if I'm faithful, you will in your own time and your own way Make fruitful the sacrifice that I have to offer to you. If you want to learn more about Titus Women, visit us online at tituswomen.org.